for G. There we are. Mark chapter number three, please follow along. And again, he, that would be Jesus, entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of their heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and beyond the Jordan, and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God! And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. The word of the Lord. You believe that God is one? You do well. The devils believe, and they tremble. Now, Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. You know, whenever I, uh, Rhonda and I travel, uh, I like to visit other churches. Um, these visits, of course, don't give me much of an opportunity to know what goes on in any particular church I might visit. Um, but I, I just go in and I assume that like us, you know, they have their ups and downs and you know, some Sundays are good, some Sundays aren't all that great, but I'm not there to be their critic, I'm not there to judge, I'm not there to try to improve anything. I just like to go to church, and I do. You know, in Mark's gospel so far, uh, including today, we're going to church with Jesus. We went to church with him in chapter number one, when he visited the synagogue in Capernaum, and, uh, and now here again in chapter three. It's interesting that when uh, Jesus visits the synagogue in Capernaum in our, in our first visit, we get, a, a, we get a bit of a surprise because uh, the sermon uh, that Jesus is given, giving is interrupted by a man who is demon-possessed. He has an unclean spirit, and, and, and the spirit begins to speak out even as Jesus has to interrupt the service, go, hang on, I got to take care of this, and he, and he performs an exorcism right in the middle uh, of the synagogue. Now, I've seen some strange things in church services. I have yet to experience an exorcism in the middle of the church. It's not saying that it's not needed. I'm just saying I haven't seen it. I haven't, I've never done it. In our second visit, however, uh, with Jesus to that same synagogue, by the way, in Capernaum, probably the synagogue uh, Peter and Andrew and James and John were part of as well, that might explain some things about them. Uh, but in the second visit, we see what many of us have actually seen in a church service. And that is, that is people who are in need, and then a group of people who can't see the need, all they can see is what they want in their own power and structure and how they think ought, things ought to be. 
and this group of power people stand off on the side uh, to accuse others uh, who are trying to do good things, to try to do, to do good works. I've seen that a lot in my lifetime uh, in the church. I'm not seeing an exorcism. Again, not saying it's not needed. But I, I have seen what Jesus experiences, and maybe you have seen it as well, a person in need, and then critics who stand off on the side to uh, accuse those who are trying uh, to help. So what in the world is going on in Capernaum? How'd you like to go to church there? You get home and go, hey, what happened at church? Says, well, we got an exorcism. You're like, oh, what? Yeah. What happened this week? Well, there was a guy whose hand needed healing, and the people, you know, didn't want it. Power people didn't want it to be done, and Jesus did it anyway. And then they went out and talked about killing him. I mean, I, you think sometimes this church has problems? No, I don't know what goes on afterwards. Maybe a, I need a bodyguard or something. I don't know. But well, let me tell you what's really happening in Capernaum, and that's what I preached last week. The curse is being reversed. That's what's happening at the synagogue in Capernaum. The blessing of Jesus is reaching as far as the curse is found. Casting out a demon, healing a man in need of healing, and exposing exposing the hypocrisy of human religion. Curse made itself a nice, cozy, comfortable room in the synagogue in Capernaum. Can you imagine being in a church with someone who is possessed by a demon and not knowing it? Until someone who has greater authority than the demon shows up and then it's exposed. But this is what Jesus does. He, he enters into a situation and applying his uh, life as the son of God and the son of man on earth who has showed up to reverse the curse he takes even the curse that's found itself a nice cozy comfortable room within a church and he exposes it and he begins to reverse it you know there's a comparison to be made here in the first chapter or the first part of Mark 3 uh with Genesis 1, at the very beginning, when you get the emptiness and the darkness that's covered the face of the earth, and you have here in, in Mark 3 a physically diseased and a spiritually dark world that Jesus has entered into. And, and of course, in Genesis 1, we have the beginning of human time when God says, let there be light, and light comes but now, in Mark, we're told that we have the beginning of God's time in this regard that Jesus has come to fulfill time. And so he is reversing. He is casting out the darkness. And what this means, of course, is that while we may you know, live in a, in, uh, within the rhythms of the 24 hours, seven day a week, 365 days a year human time, as the church, we are actually called in a much greater way to live within the fulfillment of God's time because Jesus just told us that he's Lord of Sabbath. So six days the world was created, seventh day God instituted a Sabbath, but on the eighth day Jesus enters into the world and he brings a new Sabbath, a new beginning, 
a new creation into which then by faith we enter into and we begin to live out and we join with Jesus as Jesus begins to reverse the curse and push the darkness out. This eighth day is a day that will have no end. There is no ninth day. And as Christians, we don't go back to the seventh or the sixth or the fifth. No, we are living by God's grace in the eighth day, the day of Christ the Lord, who is Lord over the Sabbath. It will have no end. And when the curse is finally and fully lifted, then we all, along with God's people, are going to walk on the face of the earth, renewed, a renewed earth, a renewed creation, renewed lives, all things made new. For as the prophet said, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That is what awaits us in our glorious future. We still have to live in human time. Just as Jesus entered into human time as the fullness of time. So before we get to this, you know, thinking about this glorious fellowship to come, we have to keep going to church. We have to keep facing the demonic oppression that comes, you know, in the form of critical people who are unwilling to see the needs of others because, as we learn here in Mark 3, their hearts are hard. Their hearts are hard. But we have to get down into the naughty problems of life. We have to descend into the particulars of people's lives and bring the good news of the gospel to let them know that a new day has arrived, the eighth day has come, and it's a day of mercy. And when we connect this then to uh, chapter number two and verse 22, when Jesus says that uh, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. And so Jesus is bringing forth this metaphor of wineskins and new wine into an actual situation in the synagogue in Capernaum. He is showing us that he is indeed Lord of the Sabbath. And you know that line that, that, that they call the battle line? That battle line is Sabbath. That's the battle line. And I, I don't have time to go into all the reasons why it is, except to say this, that if Jesus is the Lord of Sabbath, and he intends to rule over each and every aspect of his creation as the fulfillment of God's promise, and if uh, the Jewish religion who is battling him over that is hanging on to their own understanding of the Jewish Sabbath, that's the battle line of how Jesus is going to reverse the curse. Because remember what I said last week. In Genesis, you move from Sabbath to the expulsion from the garden. But with Jesus, what do you get? He begins to deal with the issues of the expulsion in the garden, forgiveness of sins, leading us where? back up to eternal rest, new creation, Sabbath rest in him. And so chapter 3 gives us three scenes here in the first 12 verses that are going to help us to understand how Jesus is reversing the curse. That is, how he is going to reach into the very hearts of people, and in doing so, he's going to bring salvation. 
The synagogue had a very important role in Jewish life in the first century. It had been established uh, to be both a local expression of their faith as a house of prayer as well as a place of study and a place of teaching. The very word synagogue means to bring people together in a place of assembly. And so we have the first scene unfolding in this place where the Jewish people would gather not only for prayer but also for uh, instruction. And in that synagogue is a man with a withered hand. Now, it could be, nobody knows, that his hand was crushed in some kind of an accident and it dried up, it didn't heal, he can't use it. Might have been his left hand, might have been his right hand. Uh, it, it might have been a disease that infected his hand. All, all to say is that it, it didn't have use. Didn't have use. And so here it is in the synagogue on the Sabbath that the Pharisees are off in the corner waiting to see what Jesus is going to do. And so he calls to the man with the withered hand, come here. He's, and he looks then at the Pharisees and he says to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? Now Jesus is really, listen, never debate with Jesus. It's, it's a losing proposition. So he's going to do it. He just put them, you know, in the double bind. No matter what they say, they're wrong. They're either going to expose their own hypocrisy, right, or they're going to have to say that he's right. Just with one simple question. Is it lawful to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? Their response is crickets, right? Silence, all right? And then, uh, this, this you might not expect, but he looks at them with anger, with anger. Why? Why with anger and why is he grieved? What is the focus point of his grief and his anger? What is it? What does it say in the text? Hard hearts. Hard hearts. That they could not see a man in need. All they could see is what they believed the Sabbath was about according to their oral tradition. That they could not see the need right in front of them. And so, of course, Jesus says to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretches it out. His hand is fully restored. So he heals the man, reversing the curse there. But then he also exposes how deeply the curse is found when the Pharisees go out and they, they go, this takes us to the next scene, right, in verse 6. And who do they make counsel with? The Herodians. Now, you know, our political parties here are somewhat simple, right? Uh, we don't have like 10 of them. We got two or three, or maybe some subsets, I understand. But not so in Jewish life. If you were a Herodian, that means that you really like political power that got you close to Caesar, because Herod was the ruling puppet king in, that, you know, in Israel at the time, uh, and a really good friend of the local magistrate, as we know later in the, in, in the gospel when he gets called by Pilate, and they hang out together, and they become friends. So, you know, these Herodians are not nice people. They're political oppressors. And they've got power. Because where, where is the actual kingly line in Israel to be found? Is it in the house of Herod? No, it's in the house of Judah. King David. That's where the rightful king. And these Pharisees know this. But you know what happens when your hypocrisy is exposed? You can even be friends with your enemies at that point. 
And so what do we see happening in this first and second scene? How hard are the hearts of the Pharisees? Not only to make political friends with the Herodians, but even to kill on the Sabbath. Think about that. Think about how deep, as Jeremiah said, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. We can't even know how bad it is. So scene one, Jesus heals, reversing the curse, and in reversing the curse, he exposes the hardness of the human heart. In scene two, we see how deeply affected you know, the heart is by sin because it's so hypocritical. It refused to do good to a man who needed help, and yet it's going to go out and murder somebody, put to death somebody who was doing good. And then that takes us to the third scene in verses 7 through 12. Who's coming to Jesus? So Jesus withdraws from there. He leaves the synagogue. He goes with his disciples out to the Sea of Galilee, and a great crowd follows. And the crowd is from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem, Idumea and beyond the Jordan, Tyre and Sidon, which is to say it's north to south, east to west, all of Israel encompassed around is hearing about Jesus and they're flocking to him. You know, the geography here has a lot to suggest to us. It's important sometimes to pay attention to it because it's not only like various regions but in those regions would represent various kinds of people and various kinds of ideas and various kinds of background, economically, politically, uh, socially, educationally, all of this stuff. It's all getting drawn in towards Jesus Christ. And why are they coming, verse 8? Why are they coming? They have heard what he was doing. They heard what he was doing. And I love the response of Jesus. Jesus says, hey, get me a boat. Because <laughs> I don't want to get crushed. <laughs> you know, I'm under threat of death by the Pharisees and Herodians, but I don't want to get crushed here by the crowd that's coming, so get me a boat. I'm going to go out, you know, off the shore a little bit where they can't get to me, but I'm going to minister to their needs. And what does he do? He heals. All who had disease press around him to try to touch him. And whoever has an unclean spirit sees him and they fall down and they cry out. And what do the unclean spirits say? You're the son of God. Religious leaders, first scene, missed it entirely. You say you believe in God? Hey, you're doing good. Except the devils believe. They tremble. They fall down before him you see what jesus is bringing by his very presence reversing the curse bringing joy to the world disease being healed people being restored the demonic forces now under his control never think for one moment don't think for one moment don't let a doubt come into your mind for one moment that satan has any advantage that satan's going to win in any way he is not over and over again in scripture what do we see the demons falling before jesus and confessing who he is we have so much to hope in so these are the three scenes then 
that we need to bring some application to in our own lives. And I'm tying it into last week's sermon because this, this um, metaphor that Jesus uses about wine and wineskins is the one I've chosen. I, I wanted to try to use the one in verse 21 about the unshrunk cloth and the garment. Listen, talk to Alice Hunt. She'll take care of your, your sewing needs. Like, she's the one that can figure that stuff out. I couldn't, I'm like, I don't get what that means. But I get the wine and the wineskins one. I get that one. And so we're going to use that one to apply. What is the true Sabbath? And why are fresh wineskins needed? Well, as I said, I want to just reinforce this, that the restoration of the man's hand is like a signpost that points us to a new day that is to come. Every healing that Jesus performs in the Bible, every, every resurrection that Jesus performs is a signpost that points us to our future, that all things will be made new. The authority of Jesus extending to the spirit world, again, a glorious future, all of Satan's host cast out into eternal darkness forever, and usher in then and finally and fully the true Sabbath. A glorious future becomes ours because Jesus alone is Lord of Sabbath. Which is why then fresh wineskins are needed. Now in terms of the analogy, uh, there's no doubt that Jesus is the new wine being poured out. But there is a lot of conversation about what are the wineskins? Now, I've struggled with this over the years, and I've kind of taken the track of the years that the wineskins are like new strategies that the church uses that God then can use to do whatever God wants to do. You know, I grew up in this, you know, in the 60s and 70s, it was the bus ministry, and then it was, you know, uh, James Kennedy and the evangelism explosion, and it was youth, I mean, all these different strategies. I, I'm not saying that strategies are unimportant, but I don't think that's what the wineskins are. It makes no sense to the text. About Jesus. Jesus isn't saying that a synagogue, hey, figure out some new strategies to get some more people in the doors. It doesn't make any sense to the text. I think the best way to understand wineskins is to look at then what is Mark driving at, beginning in chapter number one, when he says, prepare the way of the Lord. Make yourself ready for the coming of the Lord. And what are people doing? They're getting baptized for repentance of sins that is their hearts are starting to get warmed up to the message of john the baptist that messiah is coming get yourself ready and of course what was uncovered in the synagogue gets at the deeper issue that the people were not ready for the coming of messiah and then when you're in chapter number three and you say well what does jesus get angry at and what grieves the heart of jesus it is the hardness of their hearts. So that, again, tells us something about the spiritual condition of the people that Jesus is ministering to. I, mean, I put all of this together and then other things in Mark, and I said, well, you know, I think the wineskins actually are you know, our own heart, our own lives. That the new wine of Jesus through the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God being poured out do our hearts respond with faith and obedience or are our hearts hard against the new wine that is being poured out? Fresh wineskins are needed 
Fresh wineskins are not in the synagogue in Sabbath. You want to see what happens when new wine is poured into old wineskins? They go out the door and find a political cover to put somebody to death. That's what happens when the old wineskins burst open. It can't be used. It's useless. But what happens when new wine is poured into a heart that's changed and transformed? Fresh wineskins. Well, fast forward just a few years down the road to the apostles on the day of Pentecost, and what are they doing? Their lives are changed. They're preaching the crucified, risen Christ. And people are being poured in. And the Spirit of God is all over the place. This issue will be clear in the next chapter when Jesus tells the parable of the seed and the sower. And as I have said many times in the past, that the seed, the seed, that is the Word of God always reveals the condition of the heart. Right now, God's word is reading you. He is reading the condition of your heart. He wants to know right now, is your heart hard to the new wine of Jesus poured out in this age? Is your heart resistant? Can you actually look at people in need and say, well, not today because, you know, blah, 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 blah. I... Kathy Van Wee, volunteering on Thursday, you know, mentioned that last week the bell couldn't get rung because they had to stop on the way to church to help somebody who was in a ditch. Something like that. I better get the details all correct, her and Dan. And I said to Kathy, how dare you stop and help somebody in a ditch? The bell needed to be rung. <laughs> I didn't do that. I just wanted to pound the pulpit. I haven't pounded the pulpit in a long time. That's not what I said. I said, hey, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. But sometimes we forget, right? And we just race past the need because we got to, you know, well, we're doing this for God. God's like, wait, I got something for you to do right here. Guy's got a withered hand. This is the line of conflict that runs throughout Mark's gospel, which is why later in chapter number seven, Jesus quotes Isaiah and he says to the people, uh, you honor Uh, with your lips but your heart is far from me in vain you worship teaching as doctrines the commandments of men you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men which is another way of saying that old the old wineskins especially of the religious leaders of the Jews have just been burst open by Jesus the curse is getting reversed Can I, can I just send out the warning to many of you experienced Christians who, like me, like things a certain way? And I'm not saying traditions should all be done away with. I'm not. I'm a very traditional person. I have very traditional practices in my life. But if those traditions harden me, against the fresh wine being poured out? Or if my thought that what is really needed is some clever new idea that then hardens my heart against the fresh wine that's poured out? I become the problem. We become the problem.
So what are some signs we should look for to detect if we have hardened hearts or fresh wineskins? Well, I think the first thing is to look at what Jesus did. The Pharisees thought they were going to examine Jesus, but instead Jesus used the law to examine them. And as I said already, I've said many times, it is the word of God that examines us. And if you resist the Spirit, what is, what is being given to you in God's word, then over time, your heart is going to harden. The same sun that melts um, uh, the wax hardens the clay. The same word preached that affects and softens somebody's heart in this room is the same word that is going to harden somebody else's heart because they don't want to do what God would like them to do. So the first question we might want to ask here is this, who's on trial today? You or Jesus? Your heart or God's word? Who's on trial? I think the second thing we should examine always is then what are our attitudes towards people who need repair? You see, if you are being transformed internally, you will then be led to external acts of mercy. It might be stopping and helping somebody in a ditch. It might just be being kind to the cashier at the store. It might be, you know, looking at your neighbor differently. And it might be forgiving somebody that has hurt you deeply. But you have to say, If you are being transformed internally, what does it look like externally in your life? There is an inconvenience in the third scene with masses of people coming from everywhere to get at Jesus. But Jesus embraces the inconvenience. Get a boat ready. We're going to take care of these people, but I don't want to get crushed by the crowd. And I sometimes wonder, our church or any church, are we ready? For the diversity that might come? Are we ready for the various ideas and expressions that might come? Or, internally, do we have hardness in certain aspects of our life towards people in this region? And then, of course, there's always the need for discernment. When we compare the response in scene two with the Pharisees and Herodians with what we read at the end of scene number three and what the devils say, uh, we say, well, we need some discernment. We, We need people to help us to understand is what we're saying in keeping them with a transformed heart. Or, you know, are we... Saying, no, we don't want that. We don't want what God's doing. Doesn't line up with our whatever. It is as James wrote, the devils believe God and tremble. It is as Jesus said, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. At the end of the sermon last week, I asked the question, 
who will be the catalyst leaders to take the work of Jesus forward in this place. The conclusion of this sermon is that, well, the answer is right in front of us, that it will be people with a transformed heart. Now, I think there's always that place for, you know, dynamic personalities or whatever. You know, that's great. But a dynamic personality that doesn't have a changed heart will soon become the problem. You, you, might, you might say to yourself, well, I, I, I can't be a catalyst for this church. I can't do anything. You want a bat? No, not literally, but I mean, do you want a bat? <laughs> if your heart is transformed by God in Christ, if your heart is a fresh wineskin that the Holy Spirit is pouring out the Word of God into you, regardless of what you may think about yourself, can be used as a catalyst to bring forward the kingdom of God. Amen. I mean, it's, just, it's just unfortunate that the church has gotten itself to the place where, you know, like, well, only certain types of personalities can be of any use. You don't think that you can affect children in children's church because you're, you know, too whatever? You don't like kids, maybe? Look at your heart right with God. Maybe then you like kids, you know? But no, I'm saying whatever part of this church has a need, wherever this, church, this community has a need, the catalyst to bring forward the kingdom of God has to come from transformed hearts. And then as we endure in faithfulness, we will give ourselves to the Lord of Sabbath, We'll arrest ourselves in his plans and purposes, the timing of those plans and purposes to come to fruition. And so joy to the world. Joy to the world. The Lord's come. The Lord has come. We are in this eighth day. It is being brought forward. We still have to live in the seventh day. Right? But the eighth day is here. It is coming to all of its fullness. And I pray for us to be faithful until the day when the darkness is finally and fully lifted and we see Jesus, the eternal one, the, the glory of God we see in the face of Jesus Christ. And until that day comes, may we be faithful. Father, we thank you for your word. Um, there's a lot here to think about. May your spirit guide and direct us into it. May we find ourselves, oh God, to be faithful to it. And wherever, O oh Lord, we need your help, let us now, O oh Lord, consider the work that you are doing. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. You may freely copy and distribute this message, but please do so at no charge and without altering the contents in any way. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org.